It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Joe Bowler and Elizabeth Green discuss how to build a better teacher. Elizabeth Green is co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Chalkbeat, a nonprofit news organization covering education. She is the author of Building a Better Teacher, How Teaching Works, and How to Teach It to Everyone. Joe Bowler is a mathematics education professor at Stanford University and co-founder of U-Cubed, a nonprofit that offers free math resources to teachers, parents, and students. She is an analyst for the Program for International Student Assessment and advises several Silicon Valley companies. She is also a White House presenter on girls and STEM. Here are Joe Bowler and Elizabeth Green. I'm going to share a little bit about uh, my book. Um, I like to call this 350 pages in 20 minutes or less. And then Joe and I are going to have a conversation. Joe is uh, a researcher in math education and a leader in math education. And a lot of my book deals with math education, so I'm excited to be able to talk about my book with her and all of you. So, so my project began with an assignment from the New York Times Magazine. Uh, they asked me to write a story about a concept that was bubbling up in the policy debate and the political debate called teacher quality. And it made sense for the New York Times to assign that story to me. Uh, since I was 17 years old, my job has been to get up every morning and write about education, learn as much as I can, participate in the national education debate. Uh, and so you would think, as they thought, that somebody so immersed in the national education debate would know something about teaching, right? Well, I learned in uh, my reporting that that is not right. In fact, I didn't know about teaching and I actually knew wrong things about teaching. So I want to do a little quick exercise of walking you all through my learning process, the exper experience I went through that changed my thinking. So quick simulation, are you ready? There's going to be math involved, but you all signed up for the math strand, so you knew that was coming. The first problem, can anybody tell me the answer to this, what is 49 times 5? 245, do I hear any disagreements? Anyone disagree? No, you're, and you're right, and you should all applaud yourselves because the next one is going to be harder. Seriously, good job, applaud yourselves. I don't know why you're reluctant to applaud yourselves. Um, applaud the U.S. women's soccer team. Problem number two, why would a child think that 49 times 5 is 405? Anyone have a guess? Yes, because 9 times 5 is 45, and maybe they just didn't think about the 4 before the 49, and maybe they just put 45. That's a, a plausible guess. Um, it's not what this particular child did wrong. Any, any other guesses? Yes. Keep thinking, yes. He says because they're, the child did it the traditional way with stacking the numbers um, and instead of gathering, instead of thinking about what the number really means. Of course, if you know that 49 is close to 50 and 50 times five isn't anywhere close to 400, you would know there's something wrong. Okay, keep thinking about this. Here's question number three, final question. Which of these two people is most likely to know the right answer to the last question that I just posed? 
So option A is Hyman Bass. He is a decorated mathematician. Uh, he received a national medal for his co uh, contributions to math, which include, um, I, I know there's some mathematicians in the room, um, so please correct me only later, but inventing an entirely new field of algebra. Um, I didn't know that algebra has multiple fields, but he did something called algebraic K-theory. So, so that's one option. Option B is a mathematician a test that is a really big deal that he did that. So you think that he could answer any math problem that was presented to him. Option B is Deborah Ball. She is best known for her work teaching elementary school in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, where one of her accomplishments included entrepreneurially identifying an abandoned stove on the street one day, dragging it into her classroom, hooking it up, making it work, and using that to do baking projects with her students that involved math. So who is most likely to, to know why a child would think that 49 times 5 is 405? You want to vote? You vote for Deborah. Who agrees? Vote with applause or hands, OK? Who votes for uh, the mathematician Hyman Bass? Oh, we have one brave. Uh, voter. Great. So I think that actually, while everyone here knows what I'm talking about and we know that it's probably likely the math teacher, in fact, what we usually assume is that all it takes to teach well is to be really smart. And that if you know a lot about a subject, that must be enough to teach it well. Well, in fact, it was Hyman Bass and Deborah Ball together who created this learning experience for me over many days and months and for the whole country in their research together where they studied what does it take, what kind of knowledge does it take for a math teacher to effectively teach their students to help them truly understand. And what they found is that indeed the knowledge required to teach math is not the same as the knowledge required to do math well. Just knowing the right answer is not enough. Math teachers need to know the wrong answers that students are likely to give. Then they need to diagnose the underlying error. And then they need to figure out what to do about that. All of this points to one big conclusion. Teaching is, requires specialized knowledge and skill. Nobody is born knowing how to do it. Everybody has to learn. So uh, quickly, uh, oh, I was going to share you the answer. but. Um, I, I forgot that I didn't include that slide. Uh, does anyone want to know why 49 times 5? OK, lacking uh, writing implements, this will be a bit challenging. But going to your idea, um, the conventional way for a child to line up 49 and 5 and find the answer involves what? Carrying. We remember carrying. So the number that needs to be carried, because 5 times 9 is the first problem, is what? 4. 4, 45, so 5 goes down, 4 goes up, and then the next step is to uh, m take 49, take the second problem, 5 times 4 this time, right? And then add the carried 4. So first multiply, then add the carried 4. I hope you can all visualize this. Can you imagine what a student might have done wrong to produce 405? Add and then multiply. So carrying the four, they know I have to do something involving adding and then I have to do something involving multiplying. Four plus four is eight. Eight times five is 40. They drop 40 and they get 405. 
So a great teacher doesn't just need to know the right answer, needs to know why a student would do that, and beyond that needs to know that the reason a student would make that mistake is a misunderstanding of place value. And then beyond that needs to know what to do to help the student understand place value. So the point is, teaching requires specialized knowledge and skill. Second really big point I wanna leave you with is we have not treated teaching that way in this country. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, one really quick example to stand in for the rest. This is a teacher that I spoke to in my reporting. Um, his name is Stephen Farr, and he described for me a first year of experience in the classroom that many teachers described, and that is uh, repeated in the literature. He was assigned a mentor by law. His district, unusual among the country, actually assigned him a mentor. And the mentor said, I am required, as part of this program, to observe you while you teach. I have to watch you. She said, but I am so sorry that I have to do that. It's really not right. Because teaching, she said, is the second most private act. You just do not want to have somebody else watch you do it. And you certainly don't want to watch them do it. You do that in the privacy of your own classroom. So we treat teaching not like it requires specialized knowledge and skill, but instead like Victorian era sex, like something to put behind closed doors. Teachers are tremendously isolated and they have very little access to opportunities to learn. Because we, we believe in the policy world that teaching only requires innate skill, and we can leave teachers alone, tell them to do it, and they'll do it. What are the consequences for education? Teaching requires specialized knowledge and skill, but we do not create learning opportunities for teachers. Well, you've seen maybe many studies and, and rankings showing how far behind the US lags, uh, and US students lag in student achievement and especially the poorest students. Here's an example to sort of illustrate that. Um, in the 1980s, uh, the A&W restaurant chain decided that they were going to compete with McDonald's. And they were going to take down not just McDonald's, but the crown jewel at McDonald's, the Quarter Pounder. They had a foolproof plan to do this. First, their burger was going to be bigger than the Quarter Pounder. Instead of a quarter, it was going to be a third pounder. Not only was it going to be bigger, it was going to be tastier. Indeed, when they did taste tests, A&W found over and over again, customers preferred the third pounder to the quarter pounder. And for this bigger, tastier burger, they were going to charge the same price. They did a lavish marketing campaign and just waited to reap in the profits. But something different happened. Nobody bought this burger. Nobody bought it, and they couldn't figure out why until they held focus groups with customers who said the same thing over and over again. Ooh, they said, why should we pay the same amount for a third of a pound of meat at A&W as we do for a quarter of a pound at McDonald's? <laughs> they believe that because four is larger than three, that a quarter must be larger than a third, and they were not going to be ripped off. They were not. So that's another way to think about the consequences of arming a teaching force with none of the special knowledge and skills they need. Of course our students are going to be left innumerate. <laughs> what do we do about this? Well, there's two main options on the table in the policy landscape. One says, hold the teachers more accountable. Test the students more and then let's evaluate the teachers more stringently based on the results. The other says, Screw you, I don't want to hold, be held accountable. I am a professional and I need autonomy. I need to have the, the own, my own space to know, make the judgments that I know what is best for these kids. Well, I think neither of these 
is going to work because neither acknowledges the reality that all teachers need to learn. And so we can't just have them be held accountable. We have to find, and we can't just leave them alone. We need to find a way to support teacher learning. So what can that look like? Okay. Uh, so what's an example of a place that actually treats teaching differently? In J I traveled to Japan and I spent a lot of time in Japanese elementary schools where they do not treat teaching like a private act. Instead, they treat it like a public good. So what does this mean? This means, for one, Japanese teachers regularly have visitors in their classroom. And they're not embarrassed to do it. These are, people are observing the teacher at work, and not only are they observing the teacher, they're observing what the students are learning, because that's just as important to the teaching process. So the public act, these lessons can attract just your colleagues from down the hall, or in some cases, as many as a thousand teachers will gather from all across the country to watch a teacher in a large auditorium teach a lesson to real students live. After these public lessons, what happens? Teachers gather, as they did here, to discuss what they saw. They gather to discuss what they saw, and this can happen again. Three teachers over beers at the local pub, or a large auditorium, a group like all of us, talking about what did I learn? What did I notice? And whereas in this country, too often, professors of education are experts in anything but teaching, they focus on the history, the science, the politics of education, not the science of teaching. Here is a professor of education commenting on the true technology of learning. What did this teacher do effectively that we can learn from? What didn't work that we can learn from? As a result, ideas spread very rapidly very rapidly from teacher to teacher, whereas in this country we still are in a situation that John Dewey described a hundred years ago almost, that great ideas of each teacher born, are born and then die within the lifetime of that teacher. In Japan, teachers share ideas and as a result the ideas get better and better very rapidly. One example is I saw this lesson. This is a Japanese teacher uh, doing what he, practicing what is called the art of Bansho. So what is Bansho? There are actually words in the Japanese language for which we have no translation in English to describe teaching, like the Eskimos in snow because they take it that seriously. Bansho means the art and science of drawing on the chalkboard so that students will understand. I visited one school that had dedicated an entire school year to improving their Bansho. And one example of Bansho improvements is these little smallest little rectangles on the board. Some are pink and some are blue. Can you guess what those might be? And, and don't answer if you read Japanese. They're, ma they're stamps, did you say? Steps, steps of a problem. Um, that's a good, so that's a good uh, idea. That's not what those are. Yes? On the Japanese chalk where they do share different students' methods of doing something and underneath each of these little uh, rectangles is an idea, a conjecture how the students solved the problem they were all working on. So what those tags are, are the name of the child who came up with the idea. They're magnets pre-printed with every child's name, pink for girls, blue for boys. So how did these come to exist? Well, one teacher was solving a tiny little Bansho problem. That is that given this practice that the Japanese teachers have of writing students' ideas on the board, they regularly have to write the names of the student who contributed them. And they find themselves writing these names over and over. It creates a tiny efficiency, inefficiency that could be solved with pre-printed names. 
So you could save one second by instead of writing the name out, using the magnet. So the teacher tried this out, and because she wasn't working in private, because she was in public, others saw her do this. And they were able to identify that not only was this a nice little efficiency, it also had other advantages. For example, students could then be rewarded very specifically for contributing to the class. It encouraged student participation. Not only that, by using pink and blue, the whole class, not just the teacher, but the whole class could have a nice system for identifying how many girls have spoken so far, how many boys, and they could have a shared goal of contributing. They also had all the name magnets on the, lined up on the right-hand side of the chalkboard so they could keep count who has participated so far and who has not. So this is one teacher's idea. Other teachers see her do it. They try it. By the time I visited Japan, I didn't see a single elementary school where this wasn't being used in the classroom. And that applies not only to small things like name magnets, but to big things, like transforming the way they teach math so that all kids can understand. Here's one more example. Through the practice of treating teaching like a public good, Japanese teachers have collectively identified the most productive problems to introduce important conceptual challenges. So these are all of the problems of the kind of two digit minus one digit that have to do with subtraction with regrouping. Problems where instead of conveniently six, 16 minus 4, 6 is bigger than 4, four 14 minus 6, where 6 is bigger than 4 and you have to do that borrowing, right? Regrouping or borrowing. So all of these are the problems a teacher could use to introduce that topic to her class. But through the process of public lessons and discussion, Japanese teachers have identified the single most productive problem to teach students this concept. It's 13 minus 9. And not only do teachers share this with each other, but teachers in Japan are empowered. They are textbook authors. They are standards and curriculum writers. And so the textbooks also, a majority of the major textbooks in Japan use this problem to introduce the subtraction with regrouping. So finally, what would it look like to change our country to look more like Japan? How could we create these conditions? I just want to end by sharing one quick story about a, a, a colleague of Joe's and fellow math education researcher, Magdalene Lampert. She's a teacher, a teacher of teachers, and she's dedicated her life to trying to transform this country's outcomes for kids in math. She first tried to do it with her own students, then she tried to spread that farther to, to more students. But midway through this journey, she faced the challenge that many people in education face, it wasn't possible to scale a great idea. She just could not defeat the underlying biases in this country that say teaching is natural born act, or the systems that are built to reward professors for research on the biology of education rather than the technology of teaching. And so she said, I give up, I'm depressed, I don't know what to do. She did what any depressed professor does, she took a sabbatical. She went to Rome. That's how I like to imagine it, at least, when I daydream about becoming a professor. Uh, she went to Rome, where her plan was not to think at all about education. She would just drink wine, learn Italian, and forget the US education system. So she did that. She went online, and she found a school called Italia Idea for adult learners of Italian. She signed up, and she took a class. And one day, she's in the class when she notices something. So again, she's an expert teacher. Uh, 
keep that in mind. She's sitting in a class. The teacher has given a task to everyone there, something about Italian language. Five minutes of the way through the class, he pauses. They're working on the activity, but he pauses. And he leaves the room for a few minutes. Those minutes pass, he comes back, and he has a new activity that he gives to the students instead. Now, I'm not a master teacher. I wouldn't have noticed anything particular here. But Magdalene Lampert is, and she noticed something important. She noticed that what the teacher had done was first study what his students were thinking. Look at their responses to the problem. And he noticed that they were all struggling with the same underlying misunderstanding. They all could not grasp subject-verb agreement. But he also knew that the task he had given them would not help them learn subject-verb agreement. It was actually unrelated. So he changed the activity so that they could actually tackle their underlying misunderstanding and learn what they needed to learn. He was a great teacher. And the most important thing about this teacher is what happened next. So the way the school works, teachers rotate among students. So this class would go two weeks with one teacher, and then at the end they would have a whole new teacher. And again, every two to three weeks. And every time Magdalene got a new teacher, it was the same. Another excellent teacher. This school in Italy had cracked the problem that she had spent her whole life working on. They had successfully scaled great teaching. So how had they done it? She abandoned her uh, sabbatical, she turned it into a research project, and she came to conclude the following. She said, what was at work at Italia Idea, the same thing that it turns out is at work in high-performing countries like Japan, was what she called infrastructure. So what is infrastructure? In transportation, it's all the invisible stuff that makes it possible for people and things to be transported across place and time reliably every time it works. So what is that? It's bridges, speed limits, FAA regulations, pilot training, thank God for all of us here in Aspen landing in that airport. <laughs> Similarly, at Italia Idea, educational infrastructure, an invisible educational infrastructure was at work, supporting teachers so they could reliably succeed every single time. The core ingredients of the school were the same as any school. They were teachers, students, and the stuff that they needed to learn, these three core ingredients. But rather than being left alone to invent the magic of learning, at Italia Idea, these three core ingredients were surrounded by an invisible infrastructure of supports that made their work possible every time. So what were they? One was material and technical resources. So why had that teacher been able to step outside of the room and two minutes later come back with a fully baked activity that targeted the underlying misunderstanding? Because at Italia Idea, teachers shared a lesson bank of great activities that they knew responded to what their students needed to learn. What else was at work? Induction, teacher education, and professional development. So it turned out, Magdalene learned in her research, that all of the teachers at Italia Idea had attended an institution designed to help them learn to teach at Italia Idea. And that institution did not study the history, biology, and psychology of attempts to teach people Italian. It studied the, uh, the science of teaching. What kind of activity will be, lead to learning? Let, they would rehearse 
uh, activities with their students so they could practice before they came to real students and have real experience before they came. Finally, what else was at work? The organization of teachers' work. So in this country, we know that the average teacher spends 1,000 hours a year in front of students teaching. In countries that outperform us academically, it's almost half that, under 600 hours a year on average. That means that those teachers in Finland and Japan have 400 plus hours a year in which it is their job to learn to teach, to study teaching, to watch their colleagues, to study the curriculum, to study their students' work. The same was true at Italia Idea. They did not create their lesson bank and their spare time when they should have been having dinner with their families, as happens here with teachers in this country every day are forced to make those sacrifices. No, it was part of their job. So I introduced this idea of infrastructure because I think it is a much more productive way for us to think about moving our education system forward. I think we need to reject this false choice between either hold them more accountable or give them more autonomy. Let, we can embrace complexity and say no, if we respect the work of teaching enough, we're going to give it the resources that it needs. Thank you. As Elizabeth said, I'm a professor at Stanford and I'm a professor of mathematics education. And I loved this book and I recommend it to everyone. Um, can I just ask before we move on, how many people here are teachers? And what about other educators but not teachers but in education? So many of you. So um, it's so important, all the points in here, particularly about teachers getting the opportunity to learn and move on. I've had similar observations in China where what's really notable to me is when you become an expert teacher in China, the more years you've done, the better you do as a teacher, you get elevated to a sort of premier teacher position and you start to publish your lesson plans for other teachers to read. Um, here in the US, what do we do when teachers do well? We pull them out of the classroom and all of their knowledge is gone. So, you know, it's so important. What I want to do though in my question is, um, talk to you about a different aspect of teaching and see what you think. Okay. So I'm partly asking this question, I think, because your book is mainly focused on elementary math educators. And I spend a lot of my time in middle and high school classrooms. And I work with middle and high school teachers mostly. But so I totally agree, we need not, teachers need knowledge and skill. There's absolutely no argument about that. But I think what, I've, what I see with the teachers I work with, and I work with thousands of teachers a year, maybe more, is that at this point in time, teachers have been really beaten down by the system. I see teachers who used to be excited and now just teach from textbooks, who've been told what to do, who've been held accountable to tests they know to be bad and who have lost their drive. And I, what I really feel we need, as much as teachers need knowledge and skill, is they need to be inspired and excited. We need to bring back creativity in teaching. Um, the teachers need to be given and know they have the responsibility to take the decisions for their kids, to feel they have agency. And what we've been doing in our work at Stanford is um, really saying we believe in you to make the changes that are needed. And so this is a kind of interesting difference. One of the most important things for math teachers, who's a math teacher in here, don't they see? is actually to believe that students can do math. And so what, what makes me hopeful about this is if we think about teachers as needing this creativity and time 
and uh, that teachers themselves can improve what happens in classrooms. I believe that teachers learn the most from other teachers. The, the issues of um, how to improve teaching get a lot more hopeful. And we actually are providing things to teachers where they talk to each other, where they network, where they do amazing things with each other and improve their own teaching. So I think when we think just about knowledge and skill, the answer is professional development that's lengthy, time, takes a long time to do. So I, I think there's another side of teaching, and I think there's another... I mean, what we really want teachers to have, particularly in high school and middle school, which elementary teachers have in bundles, is care and compassion for kids. So how do we, um, that's not in here, I get it. You're talking about the math knowledge and it's super important, but I just wanna raise up there this multi-dimensional as aspect of teaching and how do we really move forward with that? And one of the things I love about your book is you present teaching exactly as it is, as a very complex act. And nobody gets that unless they've been a teacher of just how complicated it is. So. Um, yeah, my question is really, what do you think about this whole other side of teaching in regard to your questions about uh, progress? I think that just like with students, uh, you can't just know the math well and you can't just know the wrong answers, but you do also need to know uh, how to motivate students. And some of that is about designing really great tasks and some of it is about knowing them as people and seeing them as people. And um, we talked about my discipline chapter and that uh, I, I think of that that lens of uh, teachers not only have to teach the math, they have to, as Magdalene Lambert says, teach children to be people who study in school, to really love, and I think of that as to love the subjects that they're learning. Um, so I think that we have to think exactly the same way about teachers. And if you think about uh, the teaching of teachers as fundamentally an educational act rather than a political change or a policy problem, then you start to question why would a, uh, the, the leader of a large school system say some of the words that they say to teachers. Because these are people that you depend on to do your work and you need to inspire them and so that they can have that agency that absolutely is a fundamental part of exercising their, their knowledge and skill. So I, I agree. All right, so we're gonna open it up to the audience. Um, In your international studies, can you talk a little bit about the role of teacher pay. I know that's outside of the pedagogy, the driver of what you were talking about, but how significant is teacher pay in uh, outcomes? Yeah, and I'd love for you to weigh in as well. I mean, the, in, interestingly in Japan, the average teacher salary is lower than the average teacher salary in the US. Um, Teachers are respected tremendously, and I think we have to think about an issue like teacher pay in the context of the whole society and what other social supports are available to all adult workers, not just to teachers, and in the context of some parts of our country where teachers are paid significantly lower than other parts of our country, and in the context of even the places where, like where I live in New York City where teacher pay has risen due to you know, effective union lobbying, um, still teachers relative to what it costs to live in New York City are struggling. So we have to think about the context of the issue. But um, you know, another piece of research that I think is important is why do teachers leave? And why do effective teachers leave? And the reasons that they cite um, are less often about pay, though pay I think is very important and needs to rise, uh, but they're about work, working conditions. 
And to me, that's when you talk to teachers, it's, they will say things to you like, it was irresponsible for me to continue in this work. I did not know what I was doing. Um, the problem, of course, is that whoever replaces them is equally likely not to have that skills. But that's what teachers really, I think, the number one issue that they'll cite when they leave a classroom, you should, you should weigh in about yeah, China I mean, and other issues. China, China, the pay of teachers in China is very low, lower than here. Finland, which tops the world in math performance, um, treats their teachers very differently. They're much more respected. It's a higher order profession. They're paid more. Uh, but it's hard to look across countries and say pay is the issue with our performance as a country. F definitely teachers are paid too little. And what I see as the root of the inequities in this country is that teachers' pay depends on the tax paid by the parents who live in their area. So if you teach in Palo Alto, you get 10,000 or more, more a year than if you teach in an area where the kids really need you. So all the best teachers are pulled into the places where they're least needed, and that's a fundamental issue that's very hard to break. On other things, other questions? I really appreciate your conversation and having received my undergraduate degree at Stanford and a teaching credential at University of Pennsylvania. Um, as my dad would say, I got a very expensive teaching degree, and Fantastic. there's no way in the world without their support I would, I would still be paying back those loans. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm conflicted by so many things, but one of the things that's most troubling to me has been that when I went into the teaching profession, um, it was very much a, oh, what a noble act, and good for you. When I, when all of my friends were moving on to other uh, deemed more fitting um, careers, and and I still struggle that with that, um, even though I, I love what I do, and um, but the other thing that I find tricky is we talk about we need to learn and we need to be better teachers, yet you can go and work in the business world and get your further education paid for. Yes. Um, and in the teacher world, we don't get paid very much, yet we still continue to pay to learn and grow. And to do that in a substantial way is, is very challenging. So I think it's that organization of work and how we view it. There's so many issues with probably yeah, there are just so many issues, and I'd, I'd be interested to see what you, what you feel is, I guess, that perception of teaching yeah. as a, a noble, but not as important profession. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, say, I'll start. Um, when I, I've gotten to meet with lots of teachers around the country, and I've been in, invited to gatherings of teachers that are for the purpose of teachers coming together to learn about teaching together. And when I speak to these groups, I ask them to raise their hand if their school district paid their travel expenses, or if, they're, they're, if, if they had to take a vacation, not, no vacation day, but it counted as work. And almost nobody at this point will raise their hand and say, yes, my school district paid for me to be here. They're, the teachers are paying out of their own pockets to learn. Even though school districts are spending, I think, billions of dollars a year on professional development by one estimate. So that is a, a crazy, crazy reality about spending in the wrong places and forcing individuals to buy uh, their own learning. Um, as to the no noble profession. One of my um, favorite things I read in the history of teaching in this country was that in the early days of American education, um, teach, when the church was more a part of the 
town institution, teachers were seated right next to the leader of the church, right next to the priest, so really highly regarded, very noble profession. But the teacher in the town was also expected to sweep up after church services. And I think that encompasses the crazy dichotomies in the ways that we say, oh, thank you, teachers, for doing, you mean so much. It's such important work. Um, I would never allow my own daughter to send her, spend her Stanford, uh, my, my father said to me, you know, I, why would you become a teacher? You went to Harvard. That's not the right, he now uh, apologizes for that and agrees that that was wrong. But it's, this is a very, very key problem, and I think it's because of a misunderstanding about the work of teaching. If you just think of teaching as service, servicing children, and not as intellectual work, um, that th this, this dichotomy is produced. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was just going to add one thing about that. And I, as I say to people in the public all the time, people don't think as teaching as intellectual work. You stand up in front of a classroom of kids. This happens all the time in math classrooms. You pose a problem. A student tells you they're thinking. In a split second, you have to make sense of what they're thinking. You have to think about the mathematical trajectory of where it's going. You have to think about what the other students know and in a flash come back with another question for that kid or, or a comment. That is one of the hardest things, way harder than a lot of these professions that are thought of as being very knowledge-based and intellectual. So yeah, we, we have an image problem that we have to really counter with that. So you talk a lot about teachers learning once they've already entered the profession. What are your thoughts on how today the systems and the schooling we have that prepare teachers, how that could change and make a difference? So the question was, um, I spoke about teachers learning on the job, but what about before the job, pre-service education? And, and we have, again, a large industry devoted to preparing teachers to, for the classroom. So. What is, that, what is the role of those institutions and teacher preparation? Um, I think that one of the, uh, again, historic challenges is that when universities took over the business of teacher preparation from the institutions we had previously in this country, which were normal schools, um, a big change happened. So normal schools were like that teacher prep program for Italia Idea that Magdalene's teacher attended. They, they were entirely devoted to the business of preparing teachers to teach. They were massively underfunded, but they were at least focused on the science of teaching and the people who taught in them were themselves master teachers. Um, when universities took over, the most elevated people at the university education schools are not the master teachers, the teacher educators. They're instead the researchers on anything but teaching, as one person in my book called it. That's what gets more prestige, and that's what's rewarded. And it's very difficult today still, within the structure of American higher education, to do what Joe and many other teacher educators somehow managed to do, which is ha maintain classroom experience and still be a teacher educator. That is, uh, the incentives are all lined up to make that, that only people who don't need to sleep very much can do that. So the result is that the people preparing teachers are, are themselves uh, underfunded and undersupported and often lack the expertise of this very same knowledge and skill that we're saying is important. And I think there's some positive movement, but there's some indicators that, make, that are troubling. Um, I could share an example if you guys want to hear a sad story. I don't think you do, though. 
so I was uh, I did the same talk, and I usually when I do it longer, I mention this one the the father of educational psychology. Um, his name is Edward Thorndike, and he was one of the people who began the practice of thinking that teaching is just common sense, even though he was a teacher educator, because his real interest was studying psychology. And he only did this because he couldn't get a job teaching psychology. Common story from early education researchers. And um, so I was giving this talk, and what I realized was Thorndike Hall of a major uh, teacher education program. And I thought, is it okay for me to just trash on Thorndike in Thorndike Hall? Um, I decided to go with it because, after all, this institution had invited me to speak about a book that is not very positive about many teacher education programs. Um, so I felt like, and then nobody, nobody booed. Everyone was happy. The president, you know, the head of the institution, you know, did a nice Q and A and praised the book. Then afterwards, though. So that indicates change, right? This place is really embracing teaching, shedding their Thorndike roots. Well, I, at the reception afterwards, a graduate student came up to me and she said, I read, I read your, your uh, book, I read about um, Deborah Ball, and I decided I wanna do that kind of research, but in, on my subject, history. So she left her job teaching history to devote herself to the study of what it takes to be a great history teacher so she could teach future history teachers what she felt she hadn't been fully adequately prepared for. And she comes to this research institution ready to do that as her dissertation research, and she finds that the institution does not believe that she should do this project. In fact, the institution, the, the, the faculty in charge of her believes that teaching cannot be taught. This is at one of the most prestigious institutions to prepare teachers in the country her faculty advisor believed that teaching cannot be taught. So there are some deep, deep challenges to changing teacher education. At Stanford, we have a great teacher education yeah, program. Stanford is an exception. <laughs> Hi, thanks um, again. Uh, my question is uh, about the disconnect that I saw in the College of Education I attended at ASU, but I'm sure it's everywhere, uh, between what we know in research. We're blessed with so much more well-designed, sound research at this time in history about education. But there's a complete disconnect between what we know works and what we know is sound you know, practice versus how schools are designed. So my questions are, how do you think this came to be? And of course, what can be done about it to bring these back together? I, yeah, I do have thoughts on that. <laughs> so part of the problem is, you're right, we have a wealth of research information on how to teach. Like consider teaching math, for example. We have decades of research showing how to teach math well. It that looks nothing like what happens in math classrooms. So part of this problem, though, is university researchers are, are rewarded for publishing their research in academic journals. No teacher has time to read an academic journal, and, and mostly they're written in language that is extremely jargony, extremely, and, and this has to change, and I talk about this at my university and other places. We have to get stuff to teachers in forms that teachers are able to read and use it and make use of it. I am, I'm you know, meant to publish my papers in academic journals, and if I'm lucky, they come out in two years' time, and a few hundred other academics read them. Uh, I've started publishing papers and we put them on our website, Ucubed, and we have 30,000 teachers download them overnight and use them and change their practice. So I do think a big part of the problem we've had is we've had the research for a long time and it has not got into the channels. It's not got to teachers and it hasn't got to teachers in the right forms. Now we're in a much better place because 
technology can help us, but researchers need to change. Researchers need to take on the responsibility of, of uh, communicating in different forms. Like Maggie and Deborah, who yeah. you talk about, who you know, videotaped their teaching and made that public, which is a great thing for... Uh, and I would just say in the researcher's defense that I think it's also a res the responsibility of schools to change and, and school districts to redesign so that actually when, student, when teachers are uh, given these reforms handed down, which do reflect the input of researchers, um, Common Core Standards is a great example, that teachers have the supports actually to implement these faithfully and not to, uh, as often happens instead, just do a, a even worse thing actually with this, with this good idea because they do not have the supports to help them do it in practice. So I've always wanted to ask this question of somebody that understands mathematics. This is a math question and I'm not sure how to even ask it, but it seems like, it seems to me that the basic mathematics of add, subtract, multiply, and divide is the working mathematics that we work, use in our life when we cook, work on the car, build things, blah, blah, blah. Then you get to algebra, and algebra becomes more abstract. And it, I never had a, math, a uh, physics class or a chemistry class that didn't have algebra in it. So I always had this thought that algebra might be the most important math class that we have in our career. Could you say, does that seem to be true or not true? Or could you comment on that? Sure, I'd be happy to comment on that. So um, algebra could be the most important math class people have. Um, there's a, a lot of important work about understanding the growth of functions, but algebra is taught terribly across the United States, terribly. So, and we put kids into algebra classes who have not got what they need for algebra class, which is number sense. So people say to me, oh, kids are failing algebra because algebra is hard. Not the case, kids are failing algebra because they haven't developed number sense. And the algebra teaching is so terrible. So I'd, I'd, w I'm not of the opinion that we get rid of algebra, my, as some people would say. Um, I'm of the opinion we have to really improve the teaching of algebra. Talking of our experience with schools, I'm right in the middle of a summer camp right now teaching disadvantaged seventh and eighth graders algebra for five weeks. And they will learn more algebra in the five weeks of our summer school than the whole year they'll learn in school. And we've done it before, we see the outcomes just because of the, you know, algebra teaching is bad and the teachers don't get opportunities to learn any other way to do it, so. So my question is this, is the teacher supposed to be a substitute or a surrogate parent or an educator? And is it possible to be an educator without being a surrogate parent? So I think that in uh, high poverty communities, uh, teachers ask themselves this question constantly. Um, and I think one of the really perverse inequities is that we ta I talked about the importance of time, that teachers need time to learn. Well, in high poverty communities, teachers feel compelled to give all of their time to supporting students' social and emotional needs, as well as their academic needs, which means perversely that the students who's who need to have the most skilled teachers, are, their teachers are going to have the least amount of time to uh, learn about how to serve them. And that's because we have not invested in the social safety net in this country in the way we need to. If you, if you ask uh, the, prime, the former uh, head of Minister of Education in Finland who orchestrated the turnaround of education in Finland, what's the single most important change that happened? He says, the election of more women into political office. 
That was the thing that allowed uh, schools to improve. Why? Because they came into political office and then they changed the social safety net to allow for other supports to supplement teaching. That said, I think that in a high poverty environment, even if you have all the social workers and all the health, health programs and uh, parent supports in the world, even in the 40 minutes of a math lesson, social emotional needs are going to come up and teachers need to be skilled in, in using the subjects to teach resilience, to teach um, perseverance and, and that's just the reality that we can't escape. Great answer. Did you notice that you know students have different ways of taking in information so some are more visual, some are more um, auditory, some are more kinesthetic. Did you notice that the good teachers were moving around, the kids could move around, the teacher was talking to, how do you see it, how, do you, how does it feel, how did you hear it? Is this um, part of um, just haphazard learning or were they aware that this was necessary? I'll start and then I want to hand it over about the science of learning to Joe, but um, I, I think that the key uh, findings in the science of learning are a few. One is that uh, certainly uh, learning is social. So people need to talk to other people in order to learn. Very simple, and schools and classrooms need to be designed as such. Two, uh, learning uh, is not a dichotomy between fluency, memorization on the one hand, and conceptual understanding on the other hand. These two things are completely intertwined. So when you ask great memorizers how do they do it, they connect the numbers they've memorized to meaningful uh, concepts. This is true also of subjects and teachers then do diagnostic teaching. They start with the model that their students understand and they move from there. So they are responding to the way that all people learn um, and my understanding is that uh, while there are differences in people, there's actually more in common amongst people and the way people learn than not. Yeah, I mean, that's a great answer too. I, I would just add, I guess, that there was a lot of uh, research came out a few years ago saying there were these different kinds of learners, kinesthetic, visual. What we know is that to engage, say, with mathematics, you need all of those things. And if you're not a visual learner, you need more visuals than somebody who is a visual learner, that all of these different ways of working are important. And one of the problems, you walk into most high school math classrooms, you see one dimension of teaching, a teacher telling and a kid sitting. There is no kinesthetic, there is no visual, there is no uh, verbal, it's a single mode of teaching. Now obviously that is not good and for, if, for no other reason kids will say that they are bored by the monotony of this single practice over and over again. So. You know, we need to engage kids in these rich, different ways, all kids, no matter what kind of learner they are. And um, that is one of the things we see that more, more successful teachers do. Uh, I guess what I, my question is really about the human part of teaching. Uh, I completely agree with you that it's an intellectual endeavor. Uh, it's also an emotional art. And teachers need a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence themselves and self-awareness, emotional management. And the whole field of social-emotional learning, which is actually taking hold in this country, really speaks to what you said of learning being a social process. But in order for children to engage in learning with others, they need to develop these skills. And they can't all be developed through a subject matter. So I, I'm wondering, and, and the other piece, of interesting research from the University of Chicago on relational trust, which in looking at 10 years of reform in Chicago found that the relationships among adults and the culture infrastructure, which you alluded to, which 
contain, which has to do with respect and personal regard and competence, was the most important determinant in academic achievement and being able to bring in programs. So in building a better teacher, it's yeah. not just about learning and technique, but there's the human element, because I, I just have to say that my bias is that teaching is the most important profession that, in, that anyone engages in, so. I, uh, one of the uh, educators that I write about in my book um, told me early on when I would interrogate him for hours that, um, Elizabeth, what you just need to understand, you're asking me all these questions, you need to understand the power of love in teaching. And I sort of ignored this, ignored this, ignored this. Um, finally, one of the ed teachers that I was observing said, if you're going to spend all this time in my classroom and write this whole book, you better teach yourself. So he gave me this challenge. I said, no, 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 that's not a fair standard. What if we asked political reporters to run for office before they wrote about an election? What if we asked TMZ reporters to marry Kim Kardashian before they gave us the important updates on uh, her body? Um, well, I lost that debate and I taught his class and in a, a moment that I write about in the book, I finally understood why everyone was talking about love. And to me, what they really meant by love was fundamentally empathy. And I think empathy, seeing students as people, um, imagining that they're a person you love, allows teachers to do what is extremely challenging, which is look in the eyes an adolescent or child who's openly defying you, and still give that child your deepest trust and respect and uh, believe that they can be different. And I think that that is a part of academic teaching. It's also a part of the social emotional piece. It's, to me, it's the exact same thing as looking at their mistake and seeing not um, a, a person who can't do math, but instead an opportunity to learn. It, to me, it's all connected. Uh, but, I, but I agree with you that there's an important human aspect. So I think that's a lovely ending, wonderful answer, and uh, please thank Elizabeth. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. This is so cool. Great. That was Joe Bowler and Elizabeth Green, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.